Good. Andrea has uh, handouts, which are also in the book, but if you want a handout, take one. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and praise you this morning for this, this great day. It is a, indeed a day that you have made, and therefore it is, it is a blessing. It's a blessing to your people to be able to gather together um, and sit under your word preached and fellowship with one another and to participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray that you would just grow us, nourish us through the the, the ordinary means that you've appointed to, to grow your people. And it's a privilege that we get to participate in that today. We pray for our Sunday school hour, that it would be a, a beneficial time of, of learning of your word. Um, as, the, as the song we're going to sing a little later on says, that, that we would be able to stand on every promise that is in your word. We, we make that our prayer this morning. Pray the same thing for our children and the kids' classes, that we would just grow in a love and appreciation for your word as we grow in our knowledge of you, knowledge of your son, knowledge of the spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a good group of people here. I think y'all are all closer. That's what it is. This is good. <laughs> so today we're going to march along through our theological study of the book of Acts. And just a reminder of what this book is, the book is the, the mission of the triune God, and a reminder of what it's doing, or the, the main point, main argument of the book. Um, Schreiner, Patrick Schreiner, is not primarily concerned with giving an, an exegetical or a verse-by-verse -verse explanation or, or commentary on the book of Acts. So it's important to just remember that as you're reading the book or as we're going through this study. Rather, what, what he's doing, he's, he's, he's theologizing Acts, meaning he's engaging in, in reasoned thought to, to connect the different themes and put together the main theological conclusions and truths that, that we see in the book, that we gain from the book as a whole. Now, hopefully you've noticed throughout this study that his theologizing of Acts, so his theological conclusions of Acts, is based on, or it sprouts forth from, his interpretation of his exegesis of the, the text, which the argument has been that, that if we take Acts as a whole and, and analyze it and interpret it as it was given to us, then what we see is that Luke... The, the author of Acts has given us a well-ordered account, meaning, meaning a logically consistent account of the narrative of the New Testament church and the narrative of, of Jesus' ascension and, and the sending of the Spirit to the New Covenant people. So what we find is a lot of significant, in the book of Acts, we see a lot of significant theological themes that are interwoven together, and they all have a, a logical order to them. That's the, been the big idea that, that Schreiner has been trying to get across in the book. And that's what we've been tracing throughout 
our Sunday School series. It's what Schreiner has been calling the logical and narratival order to the theological themes in Acts. So we have seen that a theology of Acts must logically start with the triune God, with the, the Father's plan, the Son's rule and reign, the, the Spirit's empowering of His people, which that led to, which we covered last week, the multiplying of God's Word, the multiplying and growth of God's Word, which leads to this week, which this chapter, the, the focus is now on what the Word of God, which we focused on lastly, what the Word of God announces, what the Word of God declares in the book of Acts, which is salvation. Salvation. So the theme we're going to touch on today or dive into is salvation in Acts. And we did touch quite a bit on this last week and previous weeks. And you may have noticed, just like previous weeks in the book in general, there will be quite a bit of overlap. There's quite a bit of repetition. But that's because that these themes are, are fundamentally connected to each other. So it's kind of hard to talk about one without talking about the others, you know, because they have this logical connection. But the Word of God is in Acts, announces and, and enacts salvation to the ends of the earth. That's pretty much the big picture theme that we see in Acts. That salvation is now to the ends of the earth. Or what Schreiner calls in this chapter, citing from Isaiah and, and Luke 3, Salvation is to all flesh. Salvation is to all flesh. So the, the Word of God, which if you remember to last week, the, the Word of God, the content of the Word is the person and the work of Christ who, who brings salvation to His people. So we, then, so we see then the result of the Word, or you could say that the inaction of the Word in Acts becomes then a dominant theme in the book. Salvation is a, a massively important theme in Acts. It's, it's, it's all over the place, really. And not just in Acts, but also in, in, in Luke's first book, the, the Gospel of Luke. We see the word Savior, salvation, the verb to, to save. Really, it's all over the place in both Luke and Acts. Schreiner points out in the introduction that of this chapter that no other author in the New Testament uses the word salvation or, or its various forms as much as Luke does. He, he, he uses it the most um, in the New Testament. He employs the word 21 times in the book of Acts. It's included both in the narrative of accounts. It's included in the, in the speeches or the sermons that are included in Acts. And it's clear really to all theologians, all commentators of the book of Acts, that salvation is a massive or, or key theme in the narrative, in the book. Now this is interesting for a couple of reasons, but primarily because Luke and Acts doesn't actually emphasize much or describe in detail what exactly salvation is. In contrast, if you think like a, a book like Romans... That's not the case. Paul and Romans, they're clearly in great detail, goes into great detail of what exactly salvation in Christ is, what, what, it, um, um, what it consists of, 
But in, in Acts, it's, it's not the case. It's pretty much Luke is assuming the, the meaning of salvation or the description of salvation. Now, this is helpful to think about because we take the New Testament, we take the entirety of the Scriptures as a whole, so we don't divorce what we see in Paul from what we see Luke emphasize in Acts. We take them together. They actually help us um, interpret each other. So they're, they're coming, that, that, that tells us they're coming, both Luke, Paul, all the New Testament authors, they're coming with the same understanding of what salvation is in their thought and in their writings. But it's just important to note, as we think of Acts and we think of salvation in Acts, Luke majors in actually who, establishing who the Savior is, Jesus, and where salvation is to be found, and, and then kind of just recounts the, the geographical expansion of salvation as it's offered to, to all people groups or, or all flesh. But he's not as con- concerned with giving kind of a full theology or, or a full doctrine of salvation and all salvific implications, much like it seems like the Apostle Paul does in many of his epistles. And as we should expect now, we, we see in, in Acts a, a Trinitarian shape to salvation or, or the missions of the person of the Trinity, what we've been chronicling throughout this study, and, and Luke's descriptions of salvation. So Jesus bestows salvation, that the Spirit um, applies salvation, and God the Father plans salvation. This is what we've been seeing um, as we've chronicled the the narrative in Acts. So it's, it's just an important thing to remember that we don't get everything we need to know about salvation as a doctrine from the book of Acts. And we're dependent. We need the rest of the New Testament. That's why it's given to us as a, as a whole canon. We need the whole entirety of scriptures to understand the full theology of salvation or the doctrine of salvation. But Luke is emphasizing certain aspects of salvation the Trinitarian mission and what we could call the the salvation historical development of salvation as it's now offered to all flesh in the church age. That's Luke's emphasis. That's the emphasis that we see in Acts. And so that sets up what we see then in the rest of the chapter from Schreiner and the the three sections that Schreiner gives his time to as we think about salvation in Acts. And this is going to be on the sheet that's handed out to you the first little chart. And so these are just kind of the main ideas, the main things we're going to trace in the book of Acts. So first, he looks at the the Jewish and Hellenistic backgrounds of the word or of salvation, the idea of salvation, the language of salvation in those backgrounds that Luke was writing from. Gives us a better idea of how Luke is employing the term. Then we'll look at specifically the theme of salvation in Acts and how it centers on Jesus the Messiah who is the promised Davidic king. It's a big emphasis for Luke. And then finally we'll see the, the really pervasive theme that salvation is now to all flesh. It is to all nations, to all peoples. So first let's look at 
the linguistic background, but the Hellenistic background, which we're not going to spend very much time on, but really the Old Testament background of the word salvation that Luke is, is using in Acts. The first thing to point out is that, according to Schreiner, in the, in the time that Luke was writing, salvation meant the, the bestowal of, of gifts or blessing, the, the giving of a gift or blessing. And it, it typically had a connotation with keeping from harm or defending or, or delivering, preserving something. So a, the gift, you could say the gift of protection, the gift of, of deliverance. And it was typically used as a military term. So an army would bring salvation to people, to a people by keeping them from harm delivering them from uh, their, their enemies. They were saved in that way. They, they experienced salvation. And as we analyze the New Testament, that word salvation is used in many different ways, as I've already kind of hinted at. But it's no doubt it's a very important term that is used primarily in, in a comprehensive sense to refer to Christ's redemptive work. So a comprehensive term that... Um, refers to Christ, the, the whole of Christ's redemptive work. So then salvation in the New Testament is really a term that includes all the concepts of what Christ has, has won for us through His death and resurrection and ascension, justification, adoption, reconciliation. Many New Testament authors use salvation to refer to one of those things or all of those things, Maybe in a, we could think of it in a shorthand way. But Luke here, I think, is using, primarily in Acts, is using the term salvation in a more technical sense or a, a more precise way most of the time. And that is, he uses salvation to refer to a certain aspect of Christ's redemptive work. And that's what Schreiner calls the, the martial or, or the military metaphor of Christ delivering his people Christ delivering his people and guarding them, protecting them. Shriner also points to the Old Testament to show how the word salvation in that context denotes the uh, deliverance, or preservation, rescue, much of what we're going to see, I think, in the book of Acts. So this, again, would be in line with, with what Shriner is calling kind of the military use of the word, the martial use of the word. And this is what we see really, really frequently in the Old Testament. So just think back for a little bit. We'll go in the Old Testament. Moses calls the people in Exodus 14, 13 to stand firm and see the salvation God will accomplish for them. And so then we see then in the story of Exodus, God, what does he do? He, he destroys Egypt in the Red Sea. And lets Israel walk in the dry ground. He delivers his people. He rescues his people through a, a military victory of sorts. At least he destroys the, probably the world's strongest military in the Red Sea. In the Song of Moses, right after that in Exodus 15, the people sing of this deliverance. And in verse 2, we see, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He has become my salvation. 
So again, right, it's directly referring to God's defeat of the Egyptians. God's defeat of the Egyptians to preserve his people, to preserve his people and deliver them. We see this theme of salvation, the theme of deliverance from enemies. It continues really throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. When Israel nears the land of promise, Moses tells the people in Numbers 10, 9, when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. You shall be saved from your enemies. So again, notice this language of salvation. Saved from the, the Canaanites in this instance. When Moses is giving the people the laws about warfare in the Old Covenant and fighting against their enemies, this is in Deuteronomy 20. We see in verse 4, Moses writes, Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, referring to the enemy, for the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory, to give you victory. So we, again, although the term salvation is not there, it's definitely referring to that same theme of salvation, of deliverance over enemies, victory over enemies, and giving His people the victory. So we see the, the salvific themes. Later, right, as the storyline progresses, the enemy changes from the Canaanites to the Philistines. Um, he, he gives accounts in, in the text, Shriner does, of, of more themes or more salvific language, like in the Song of Hannah in um, 1 Samuel. When, while Israel's in, Israel's in exile, the prophets tell Israel, the Old Covenant people, to turn to God and be saved to experience salvation while they're in exile in Babylon. So again, we see salvific language pretty much all over the place in the Old Testament as the narrative progressive, as God delivers His people, He protects His people from their enemies, all with military connotations, with, with conquest, military, martial connotations. So whether it's the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, God is going to deliver His people. And, and Schreiner brings up a really important point that I think is key to understanding Acts, and that is it wasn't just that God was saving them from their enemies, though He was definitely doing that. He wasn't just delivering them just to, do, just to deliver them, but He was saving them he was providing them salvation for or, or to something. He was saving them for a purpose. And what that saving to something is, is massively important as we think of Acts. So Israel was not only saved from Egypt, but saved so that they could be in covenant relationship with Yahweh at Sinai, where, where the old covenant was, was formed and ratified. Israel needed to be saved from the Canaanites so that that, the, the, that old covenant community, Israel, could continue their worship of the Lord as the Lord had commanded him in his law. In exile, I think this is also extremely clear, Israel longed for salvation from um, captivity, from the Babylonians. Why? So that they could gather together as the old covenant community. So they could gather together to 
to reform, you could say, the, the old covenant community in their land so that they could worship Yahweh, so they could worship the Lord in the land and in the temple. The argument that Shriner is making, and not just him, but really this is a lot of different theologians um, make this point, is that salvation in the Old Covenant is linked with the formation of and, and religious life of the Old Covenant community. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Salvation in the Old Covenant is linked to with the formation of and the religious life of the Old Covenant community, which is really important because that's the backgrounds for how salvation is operating in Luke's mind when he's writing Acts. So God is saving a people for himself, this is Acts now, in the New Covenant so that they can form and worship God as the New Covenant community, as the church. Shriner adds another little section that we're not going to spend a lot of time, but, but essentially he argues that even in the, the Hellenistic Greek thought of the day, the context that Luke was operating in, the terms for salvation and, and the salvation adjacent terms deal with this military idea of a single ruler who comes and rescues his people. This is much in line with what we see in, in the Old Testament. And so with both backgrounds in mind, then we can kind of summarize by saying, we can see that, that salvation means for Luke a, a military idea centered on a ruler. So, so thinking of the Old Covenant, Yahweh, in the case of Israel, fighting on behalf of his people, who comes and rescues his people by defeating their enemies. And the purpose of this rescue was for the formation of a covenant society or, or a community that can live in obedience then to the commands of the Lord. By giving them, or by giving God the, the worship that he is due. And so what we see in Acts is that this is foundational, this background is really foundational for understanding the theme of salvation in Acts. The, the, the understanding of salvation that Luke is working with. But we're going to see he also reconfigures this theme in some very important ways um, with regard to Christ's salvation. But I'll pause here for any comments, questions. Yeah. He, he, he does kind of, he, he especially did in the, the Holy Spirit chapter, um, but he's going to talk about here in a moment about um, salvation being the forgiveness of sins, which is only possible through the regeneration of the Spirit. So it's definitely at play. Okay, let's, let's move on to how salvation then operates or functions in the book of Acts. So this is the second section. I, I would just say it up front, I'm going to diverge quite a bit from Schreiner, although I don't think I'm contradicting him. Um, but I'm going to be using some other sources. So if you're like, where is he getting that from? It's, it's not in the book per se, but I think he would agree. If he was here, he'd be like, yeah, that, that's, that's good, right? Hopefully. <laughs> and if not, then he's wrong. Okay. <laughs> So what Schreiner argues here is really that, that in Acts, salvation includes both spiritual and heavenly realities and temporal and physical realities. I could say that better. I put the break in the wrong place. So in Acts, salvation includes 
spiritual and heavenly realities and temporal and physical realities. And his, real, his, his big argument is that we, we, we can't, we really shouldn't separate the two because Luke doesn't intend to separate the two. And I think that makes sense given the Old Testament background of the theme and concept of salvation and the Old Covenant that we just talked about. So based on, on that last section, it would be easy to see, it, it would be very easy to conclude that that salvation really is only about this world, about deliverance from our, our kind of temporal, earthly enemies. And we'll see in a moment that Luke does use salvation to denote earthly realities, especially in regards to the formation of the New Covenant community. So there is some real physical deliverance. There's real physical healing. There's, there's, there's physical evidence of salvation in Acts. But these earthly realities have what Schreiner calls a heavenly source. And what he means here is that even though salvation should be put under the banner, banner of deliverance, of, or, or kind of what he was just talking about, that wartime, military term of, of earthly de deliverance. For Luke, this is not separated from spiritual realities. And we can see this in Acts in a number of ways. First, being that Luke consistently ties salvation to the forgiveness of sins. He consistently ties salvation to the forgiveness of sins which is not a physical deliverance per se, but what? A, a spiritual deliverance. And we actually see this in the Old Testament. So though the term salvation primarily described physical deliverance in the Old Testament, like I just chronicled all those, those places, the hope of that physical deliverance was, again, connected to the people of God's right worship of Yahweh and their rescue from a sin. This is really... A major theme in the prophets, Jeremiah 31, 34, states this pretty clearly, that the prophecy of the new covenant, that God will forgive his people's sins. They need a new heart. They need to be regenerated, as Corbin was saying. They needed the forgiveness of sins. So salvation in the Old Testament expresses a physical deliverance, but that deliverance was always meant to be accompanied by spiritual blessings, namely a new heart and the forgiveness of sins. And we see that then in the New Covenant. We see that when the New Covenant is, is given or inaugurated, and we see it in Acts. What we see is that Luke shows us how our, our enemies that we need to be de delivered from, it's no longer Egypt or the Philistines or the Romans, which is their present context. No, our issue, our primary enemy is actually in us. It is our sin. It is our own fallenness. We need forgiveness of our sins. That's the, 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 the thing, our great issue, the great enemy that we must be delivered from. We need deliverance and salvation from then our most fundamental problem, our own sin. And this is what we see in the pages of Acts. So the second reason why we see that salvation in Acts deals with, with spiritual realities, and not only physical realities, is because Rome and the nations that, that stand against God are not viewed as the, the enemies in Acts primarily. In fact, Romans, 
who would be the, the nation standing against God, they're invited to participate in salvation. They're invited to participate in the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. So Cornelius, for example, he's a centur- centurion. That's not how you say that. Centurion. How do you say it in Texas? Centurion. Well, he was a Roman soldier of some high rank. <laughs> and so he was really like a state soldier of Rome, right? And he's invited. He, he's, he's saved through the, 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 the teaching of Peter. He's regenerated by the Spirit. He's invited to participate in salvation. So the nations which this is important, Rome did stand opposed to God in many ways. It was not like a God-fearing culture. They, they, but they're not viewed then as the enemy uh, that God needs to destroy, much like we see Egypt was or, um, oh, blanking. Philistines, thank you. Someone like that. So to think in Old Testament categories, the New Covenant community doesn't need deliverance from earthly nations. They don't need protection from Rome. The the enemies that that we see for us in Acts are sin, their death, and their demonic forces. So all those are, are, are spiritual realities. So we could say the enemies that we need deliverance from are then primarily spiritual and act. So that's kind of how Luke, and I would say all of the New Testament authors, reconfigure this Old Testament concept of salvation. Although, as I just said, this was also present in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Forgiveness of sins was always necessary. The Old Covenant people needed a circumcised heart to be in right fellowship, in right relationship with Yahweh. So it's really not a reconfiguration. I'm going to change that language from Shriner. It's a reaffirmation of what we see in the Old Covenant. So just to summarize this point a bit, by looking at Acts as a whole, what we see is that salvation is needed in Acts because of primarily spiritual realities, not physical, so that we see that salvation is needed because of rebellion against Jesus. Salvation is needed because of our, because of our very sin nature and the sins that we, we, we commit. People need salvation because of idolatry in Acts and the future wrath of God against such sin, against the, the sin of idolatry. And salvation is described as a gift of God to all people, to all nations that results in the incorporation of people into God's covenant community, into the people of God. And this is really in line with what we see, or this is what we should expect as we read the, the rest of the New Testament. And this is really in line with what salvation is there. People, every single person, needs saving, needs salvation because every single human is a sinner. We're, we're, they're enslaved to the evil one. So Jesus, who's the, the enthroned Messiah, is the the benefactor of this salvation, who, who gives this gift, he's the one who, who produces this, gives this gift to his people. A, a spiritual deliverance, so notice what I'm highlighting, a spiritual deliverance from sin and a spiritual reality of being brought from death to life. 
a, a, a spiritual regeneration. Now there is a however, you might be thinking. However, Luke does not completely spiritualize salvation in Acts. Meaning there were many accounts of physical salvation or physical implications of these spiritual realities. There are earthly or physical realities that salvation enacts, that we see in Acts. And really what is key here that I want us to focus on, or that I think we need to understand to make sense of this, is back to what we saw in the Old Testament background, which is, I think, key to understanding Acts. We need to see that in these physical realities of salvation, so the, the healing miracles, the, the lifting up of the marginalized, of the poor, of the oppressed, all of this type of uh, accounts that are happening in the narrative of Acts, also in Jesus' ministry in Luke, it's very much a continuation of the same thing, all of those are tied to the formation of the new covenant community, the church, which is exactly what we saw in, in the Old Testament. The Israelites were saved from their enemies so that they could form the old covenant community and, and worship God. The same pattern is, I would say, is happening here in the New Covenant in Acts. We are now saved from our mortal spiritual enemies, sin, death, so that we can form into the New Covenant community and worship God in, in spirit and in truth with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so when this occurred in history, when this, when this event occurred in history, um, which is what we see recorded for us in Acts, and the, the time and the ministry of the apostles, what occurred was these physical salvific signs occurred rampantly all over the place. The way Schreiner articulates this is that salvation in Luke's writing includes a, a status inversion of who now can be included in the people of God. So now it's the lowly, the, the lame, the paralyzed, the outclass, or the outcast. There's the, they are the ones that are being healed. They're the ones that are being welcomed into the covenant community through their, their physical healing, which is a representation of the spiritual realities of new life. The unexpected, they're, they're raised up and experience physical salvation as a picture of heavenly realities. So as a picture of these, these spiritual realities of salvation. But here's a big point. Really the, the point I, I'm arguing, or that I think Acts is making, that Luke is making, is these are all pointing to, for us to show us that the new covenant community will include all types of people. All types of people. No one's really off limits because of their social status or, or anything like that. That's where, that's where he's calling it a status, status inversion. I think that's exactly what we see in both the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. And Schreiner says we can see this in the narrative pattern between Peter and Paul's sermons. And we've talked about this before, so this shouldn't be completely new. But the relationship between Peter's sermons and Paul's sermons and then their miraculous signs directly following those sermons. So Peter in Acts 2 at the Pentecost sermon, Paul in Acts 13, they, they preach and they teach. Their message is on the centrality of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus as being the Savior and enacting salvation, and that salvation is for all people. 
And then right after that, Peter heals a lame man in the temple in Acts 4, which we've said before sort of enacts salvation visibly. It's the same language using, um, the same language of even resurrection being used there, denotes a, a physical salvation. That's how I think we're, we're to read these events. And then the, it helps us view the healing of the crippled man then is not just simply some medical miracle, Right? There's a, there's a greater purpose for the miraculous heal, healing. It's a sign of salvation. Schreiner writes, Peter preaches salvation at Pentecost and then spreads or displays salvation to the lame man. I think we see the same pattern with Paul in Acts 13 and 14. So right after preaching on salvation to the Gentiles... Paul heals a lame man in, in chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. So we see Paul enact, again, just much like Peter did, a physical sign of salvation, a physical salvation to be a sign of the spiritual realities that he was just preaching on, that he was just teaching on. But here's what I want us to see. The physical salvation, the healing matters. It's not strictly a spiritual picture, and it matters in that it's a picture of inclusion of the physical realities of salvation, which is tied to the formation of the New Covenant community. So that's really the thing I just want to hammer home to us. So the miracles are, are signs that teach us that salvation does indeed have, have physical realities, but it's not that we should be going around and expecting to heal people today or expecting these miraculous signs to occur today. That's not the point of Acts. The healings were, were never for the healing's sake. The point is the healings are showing us the, the earthly realities or the, the physical realities of salvations, which are tied to, tied to the incorporations of all types of people into the New Covenant community. So it's tied to the formation of the New Covenant community. So then, even the unexpected person can be included into God's new covenant community through their faith in Jesus, through their, their, their salvation. And here's the point, right? We're all that in some sense. We're all rebels, rejects. We don't deserve to be in God's community, especially if you think in the old covenant, we're, we're not, I'm, I'm not Jewish, I'm a Gentile. But we are welcomed. Now, if you've been, again, a lot of that wasn't in, in Schreiner's book, but I definitely think it's helpful in illuminating the, the point he's trying to argue. I'll pause here. Any questions for going to the final section? Okay, now we get to get to the last section, which is on your sheet. It's what Art Baker called our dartboard that we're going to go through darts at. It's a series of concentric circles. That's the picture. But we're not going to get there yet. Really, the, the last theme that Schreiner looks at is probably the most obvious to anyone who's read the book of Acts, or if you're reading the book of Acts, or if you've been in this study. So we're not going to spend the most time here, and I'm not going to cover everything Schreiner covers in the book, because I think the argument's pretty clear. But that theme is that salvation is now inclusive of all people. In Acts, salvation is inclusive of all people. 
And that's really the point. Not that not all people will be saved in some sort of universalism sense. That's dangerous. That's bad. But inclusive that, that God's salvation is now offered to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is to all flesh. We've talked about over and over again. I feel so repetitive when I bring this up, but I'm going to do it again. That the structure of Acts stemming from Acts 1-8, Acts 1-8, right? I've been arguing Acts as a table of contents for our whole book of Acts. Um, the table of contents of the narrative. But the structure flowing out from that command of Jesus, it screams to us, it screams to the reader, that salvation is to the ends of the earth. It's to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's because the narrative is structured and centered on the expanse of the gospel message of salvation being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So that's exactly what we see when we turn the pages of Acts. This thing is happening. This thing, this salvation is now being given to all people, all people groups. The message of salvation is proclaimed to the nations. So therefore, the, the, the rescue and deliverance from sin and darkness, what we've been talking about salvation, what it actually is in this chapter, that's for all peoples. So then we can see then what, why we could say that in Acts, salvation has a universal focus. But I think it's really just important that we must distinguish here. We're not talking about something called universalism, which is a, a, a heretical belief um, that all people, or some iterations of the belief, that all people will be saved because now salvation is for all people. This may seem obvious, but it's important to note that just because salvation in the gospel is going to all nations and all people groups, that not everyone in those nations and people groups are going to experience salvation, or they're not all a part of God's people. There still has to be the positive response of faith and repentance to the Lord and the gospel message. But it, it's just important to be aware that some people cite Acts, misrepresent Acts, to, to, to argue from this, this point that, that salvation is universal in the sense that it is going to save everybody. Now that Jesus has come, salvation is for all people, and that literally everyone will be saved. That's, that's really bad. We need to avoid that view. Now, Schreiner has a very helpful section here that shows some textual evidence in both Luke, so the Gospel of Luke, and Acts, that clearly points to Gentile inclusion of God's people. Or Gentiles promise that they would experience salvation. So first is something we see John the Baptist say all the way back in Luke 3. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. So Luke 3 verses 3 through 6. We read, And he, so that's, that's John the Baptist, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So notice here that John the Baptist quotes Isaiah 40, 35, 
And that last line is really what I want us to focus on. It's really key here. That all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Interestingly, no other gospel account or writer includes this phrase when, when they quote Isaiah 40 in their works. And the point here is that Luke is, by including this quote from John the Baptist, who is himself quoting Isaiah, the reason Luke included this is because of his particular emphasis in both Luke and Acts on the theme of salvation going to the ends of the earth, being for all flesh. And we see even in the ministry then of John the Baptist that salvation is for all people. Second, we're going to go to the end of Acts. So we, we kind of start at the beginning of Luke, the beginning of his two volumes. The end of Acts, the near, near the end of Acts, Paul quotes Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. In Acts 28, verses 25 through 20, I should have printed out this chart for you all too, but it's in the book, this chart of all these connections. Um, but Acts 28, verses 25 through 28, and Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, so now he's quoting Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ear and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore... Let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is the very end of Acts. Seems very obvious, right? What seems very obvious here? Salvation is now to who? Yes, thanks, Devin. The Gentiles. Yes. Um, so both these texts show us how, how even before Jesus... So, so John the Baptist announces that the universal welcome to all, this is now being enacted in salvation history. And then Paul announces the same exact thing, that salvation is to all flesh, it's to the Gentiles, post-Jesus or after Jesus and his resurrection and ascension. So it's just making the point that, that it's really, really abundantly clear as we're reading Acts that salvation has come and will be seen by all peoples, all nations, all flesh, and it's also really important to note how these verses quote Isaiah. Directly quote from Isaiah, which is a very clear indication to us that the gathering of the Gentiles, the gathering of people from all nations into the people of God, has always been a part of God's plan. It's always been a part of God's plan of salvation all along. And we see this all the way back in Genesis when Abraham is promised he would be uh, the father of many nations. He'd be, have descendants as numerous as the stars. You remember these texts from, from Genesis 12 and, and 17. Abraham's promised, or, or Isaiah says, picking up on that same promise given to Abraham, everyone or all flesh will see the salvation of God. And that salvation will be sent to the Gentiles as a major theme in the book of Isaiah. So it's really important to note that what we are seeing in, in Luke's emphasis on salvation going to the ends of the earth, or, or we could say the, the emphasis that we see in acts of salvation going to the ends of the earth, that emphasis is not new to him. 
It's really, really key to understand. It's not a novel concept that the New Testament just kind of, bam, now it's all different. Now, this has been the promise that we've seen in Scripture, promised to us over and over and over again, that, that this salvation is for all people. It is for all flesh. So, I would argue then we should view the theme of salvation in Acts much more in line with fulfillment of God's plan from the beginning, of God making descendants of Abraham as numerous as the stars. So that's exactly what's occurring. We're seeing the fulfillment, the inaction of that happening as salvation goes to the ends of the earth, which makes Acts really an amazing document for us in the New Testament. It's just an amazing we're seeing it happen. We're seeing everything we've longed for as we read the Old Testament, everything the people of God had longed for. We're seeing it occur in history as it's delivered to us. But think about this. Reading Acts in this light, in light of the Old Testament fulfillment, not only helps us understand the meaning and theology of Acts, which it's necessary, or you're going to get to all wonky interpretations if you don't understand the Old Testament context or the Old Testament fulfillment, but it also helps us read the Old Testament better. That when we then come to places like Isaiah, which are quoted in the New Testament, right? Used by John the Baptist. It was used by Paul. About those texts being fulfilled in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? Those texts are being fulfilled now with the inclusions of the Gentiles post-Acts 10. We know then, then when we go to Isaiah and read Isaiah in this context, what the fulfillment of those texts are, which actually gives us our understanding of what Isaiah is talking about. So really what I'm trying to say is reading the Bible with this whole canon context helps us not only understand the fulfillment of the New Testament passages, but it's really necessary to understand the meaning of the Old Testament text, which is why I'm, I, I'm really fired up about this stuff, because it, it helps us read the Bible. And there's really no greater thing than that. Okay, we got to get to the circles, concentric circles. Oh, concentric circles. Okay, so Schreiner has this idea in the book. I think it's pretty helpful. I don't want to major on it too much. And that is that if we analyze salvation in Acts pretty thoroughly, we can see salvation move out from a center into what these concentric circles are. And so you have this idea for you in picture form, which hopefully is helpful for you because I had a very hard time articulating this in words. Um, but here it goes. So the central circle would be those most expected to receive salvation. So the inner circle is the Jerusalem lights with, with Judeans right after them. And they would be more expected in the sense that Paul would talk about in Romans 1 of salvation first coming to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And it's simply because the Jewish people were, were God's old covenant, the God's old, yeah, God's old covenant community. The salvation was first to them, which just makes, makes sense. Now, which, with each successive circle that goes out from the center represents further unlikelihood of being included in the people of God and further prejudices against those group in the time of, of Luke writing in Acts, especially from the Jewish perspective. So the Jewish prejudices and the Jewish unlikelihood of 
Oh, those people could actually be saved? That kind of thinking. And, and Schreiner's point is Luke's doing this intentionally. If, and, and we see this as the, the narrative progresses with Peter preaching in Jerusalem in Acts 2, primarily to Jews. And then all the way in Acts 27, the gospel goes to barbarians. And Rome in Acts 28. So these circles also roughly follow the narrative progression and spread of the gospel to these groups. So we see this progression as we follow the narrative of, of the book of Acts. So Luke moves from Jerusalem to Judea to the Hellenists, who are Greek-speaking Jews, to the Samaritans, to the God-fearing Gentiles. So think of like the Ethiopian eunuch. Think of Cornelius. So that would be Acts 8. I think Cornelius is Acts 10. Then the gospel then goes to pagan Gentiles, and finally to, to barbarians who are viewed as the, 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 the most inhuman, or what's the word, not inhuman, uh, someone help me. Uncivilized, uncivilized thank you. Yes, the, the most unlikely candidate to be occluded into the people of God, the barbarians even. Now, now, what a chart like this does that I think is helpful, right? I don't think it, yeah, I'll just say this. I think it's helpful is that it breaks down largely what we just make in one group that we call the Gentiles. But it's helpful to know that there's actually is some diversity. There's differences in the categories of Gentiles that we see in Acts. And, and Luke is intentionally highlighting those differences, especially from the Jewish perspective of these groups. Schreiner provides quite a bit of detail in the book about how Luke frames these differences of the Gentiles, and it is pretty interesting. I had a, just be honest, a difficult time grasping his argument, so I'm just going to kind of skip it, but I, I do think it is interesting. And so if you're interested in that, in that progression of these groups of Gentiles, I encourage you to look at the, the end of chapter 5. But just to conclude here, the, the overall big picture point Schreiner is making in this section, so the third section of his chapter, is that as we see the narrative unfold in Acts, we see the gospel and salvation in Jesus' name for all of humanity, for all flesh, even those groups who we would, or especially the Jewish people, would, would intuitively think are the least likely candidates of salvation. So we see this both in the... And the, the healings, so like kind of the social status of certain people, so the, the beggar, the lame, um, those people that, that experience salvation. And then we see it also kind of on the, the social ethnic group status of um, the Samaritans, the pagans, the, the barbarians. There's just uh, what, what Shriner's calling a status inversion, and then maybe even a, a, an ethnic or, or people group inversion of now who is included in the people of God. And so we do see that quite a bit as we read Acts, and it's just an important thing to note. So that is all the time I have for us today. I would probably definitely be included in the barbarian category of the group. Maybe all of us are, probably, to the Jews. Um, any final questions or comments? I, I like that, but I, I think I have to think about it a little more.
Because I do think there is some chronological development happening as the gospel spreads actual, like actually in history. This is the first time they heard it, the gospel. So I would be uncomfortable saying they were experienced salvation or included in the people of God before that, that moment in time when they heard the gospel, regenerated, became part of the new covenant, Holy Spirit and dwelt them, right? But I do think you're right that he is definitely using it as a literary device to make a theological point. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Someone's probably written a book about that, probably like five, but that would be interesting to tie down. It's almost a time-space thing, and he identified the pagans as a geographic expansion over time. Yeah, I think he's definitely viewing it that way, for sure. All right. Thank you all so much. We'll see you in a few minutes. You're dismissed.